Well, this morning, as you're getting seated, go ahead and take out your Bible or phone, however you read God's Word. And today, we're going to turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, as we walk through the book of Revelation together. And one thing that kind of just always perplexes me is so many people won't read Revelation. So many people don't like to teach or preach Revelation because they say Revelation just doesn't make sense to them. Well, let me tell you, if you don't understand Revelation, then you can't make sense of the rest of the Bible. Revelation is what makes the rest of the Bible make sense. Because Revelation is the fruition of God's plan for all of redemption, for all of creation to be restored. And we see in Revelation the rest of the Bible. So we will use the rest of the Bible to understand Revelation so that it will tie it all together so that you can understand what God has placed you on this earth for and what he has placed you on this earth to do. And we see that in this book of Revelation. Now remember, as we've broken this book down, we are breaking it down into three parts. And we get that from Revelation 1, chapter 19, when Jesus tells the Apostle John, who writes the book of Revelation, this is what I want you to write. And he says, first, I want you to write down what you saw. And what he saw was Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And chapter 1 is all about what he saw. Then he says, write down what's happening now. In Revelation 2 and 3 is what is happening now. Not only in eighty ninety when John wrote this, but right now in 2020, this is what is happening. And so that was Revelation 2 and 3. And then he says, write down what will happen. And that's future, even for us. And that's Revelation 4 all the way through Revelation 22. This is what's going to happen. So many people want to know, well, what's going to happen with my life? What's going to happen with this world? What's going to happen? Well, right here it is. This is what God says is going to happen. So we're in the future part of Revelation. And so today we're going to be in Revelation 5. And in Revelation 4 and 5, what happens to the Apostle John is he's actually taken up to heaven and he gets to see heaven. And Revelation 4 and 5, we have more about heaven in those two chapters than the rest of the Bible combined. And so we have a limited view of heaven right here because God, John only gets to stand in the throne room of God. That's all he sees. He doesn't see the rest of heaven. He sees the throne room of God. But listen, that's enough because we get to see more than we can process. So today we're going to see the throne of God. And this week, as I was trying to just contemplate what John was doing, writing about heaven and trying to write about something, honestly, that's indescribable. How do you do that? I tried to think about something that I've seen in my life that if I tried to describe with words, I couldn't describe it. I just couldn't do it. And I've got to travel a lot of places, over 40 countries, and I've got to see all over the world, almost all the world I've got to see. And so I tried to think about the most majestic, the most marvelous thing I've ever seen. I have a lot of things I could tell you about, but probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen is one day we were in Africa and we got to go out into the Sahara Desert. And what we did is we got on camels and we rode out deep into the Sahara Desert and we climbed a large sand dune and we watched the sun set over the Sahara Desert. And as I saw the sun setting over the Sahara, I've seen a lot of sunsets, but I've never seen anything like this. Just the majesty of this sunset, all the colors of this sunset. I, I cannot describe it for you. I cannot tell you in words what that truly looked like. Now think about the Apostle John trying to describe something a thousand times more majestic than that. How is he going to do it with mere words written on a page? It's impossible. But I want you to see what he says anyway. So if you have your Bible, look there in Revelation 5, or you can look on the screens. But I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And we're just going to read a few verses and talk about them. But this is what the Bible says. John writes, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who is sitting on the throne. Now, who's sitting on the throne? God the Father is sitting on the throne. And in his hands a scroll. I saw that scroll. 
Then he says, there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice. Now that loud voice, it's megala in the Greek. That's where we get the word megaphone from. So this angel is shouting with a megaphone type voice. That's how loud his voice is. And this is what he says. Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I, John, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And he had horns, seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward. He took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And the most amazing thing to me about this text is out of all the things that John saw in heaven, that he saw at the right hand of God, standing there in the throne room of God, the one thing that he focuses on is a piece of paper, a scroll. Now, a scroll to us, we don't call things scrolls, but all it is is a book. It's a book with writings in it. And why in the world does John focus on that scroll? He mentions it eight different times in Revelation 5 alone. This scroll. Why is that scroll so important? Here's why it's so important. Because on that scroll is written God's plan for redemption. It is God's plan to rid this earth of evil and sin and sickness and disease. All the chaos that we experience today. All the horrible, horrible things we experience. This is God's plan to redeem, to restore, to renew, to recreate the earth and a heaven. This is God's plan. So John sees God's plan, even though he can't read it because it's closed, it's sealed up, and he wants to know what it says. So he stands, and he waits, and then an angel comes forward, and an angel with a loud voice says, who is worthy to open and read this scroll? And so this angel begins to scan all of heaven, and he sees all the people who have come, all the people who are there who are called saints of God, prophets, apostles, whatever it is. He looks at all of them. He starts with Abraham and Moses. He goes through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah. He goes to the New Testament, and he looks for Peter and James. He sees Paul. He sees Mary, Ruth, Deborah, whoever it is, and none of them are worthy. Then he sees the millions and millions and millions of angels. None of them are worthy. Then he scans the earth. And guess what on earth? No one is found worthy. So what John begins to do, because he wants to see so desperately what God's plan is, and no one is worthy to read it, he begins to weep. And not only weep, he weeps bitterly, the Bible says. Bitterly he begins to weep. But then an elder, which just means a saint of God, a believer, you and I, one of the elders stands up and just taps him on the shoulder and says, stop crying. For there is one, and he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Go back to Genesis 49 and read it. That's a messianic call of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who is his to come. Why is he described as a lion? Well, think about what a lion is. Is a lion not the king? We call the lion the king of the jungle. Why is a lion the king of the jungle? Because the lion is the strongest. He is the most majestic. He is the most powerful. So the lion is worthy. 
to read from the scroll. So John stands to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that has been slaughtered, killed, destroyed, dead. That's what he sees. Why in the world, in heaven, in the throne room of God, does John see a lamb that was slaughtered? He sees it because that is God's plan. That is God's plan for redemption. And it has been ever since the foundations of this earth. How do I know? Because that's what the Bible says. Go back to the book of Genesis. Back to the beginning. That's what Genesis means. If you go back to the beginning... And you see the first few chapters of Genesis. It is wonderful, especially in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Because you see Adam and Eve. And where they are is the garden. And all the garden represents is heaven. Because heaven is the presence of God. And in the garden, guess what was present? God was present there. And everything was perfect. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no fear. There was no sickness, no disease. Everything was perfect. And the Bible even says that Adam and Eve, they would walk with God. And they would talk with Him every day of their life perfection and God told them Adam Eve there's only one thing only one thing you cannot do everything else is yours you can do anything you want just one thing you cannot do and guess what the one thing they did the same thing you and I would have done because Genesis chapter 3 Satan comes and he tempts them and they do the one thing God said not to do they sinned and this is what happens. Look in your Bible or look on the screen. This is what Genesis 3 says. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take from the fruit of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. So what happened when Adam and Eve sinned is the Lord God banished them. It just means he kicked them out of the garden. He kicked them out of heaven. Why? Two reasons. Number one, the first reason is because God is holy. And what that word means, it just means that he is set apart. And what is God set apart from? God is set apart from sin. And in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they had to be set apart from God and they had to be set apart from his presence. And that's why they had to leave the garden so that they could be separated from God because he is holy. He is set apart. But that was not the only reason. The second reason is because if they had stayed in the garden and they had have eaten from the tree of life, then they would have lived forever. And then forever and ever and ever and ever, they would have been set apart from God. They would have lived in sin forever. And God does not desire that for his creation. So what did God do? He had a plan. And what was his plan? Well, you see it right here in Genesis 3. Look at verse 21 again. Bible says, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, what did God have to do to the animal before he could make animal skins or clothing for Adam and Eve? The animal had to die, right? 
blood had to be spilt. A price had to be paid for sin. Maybe you're wondering here, what animal did God kill? Well, I can tell you what animal God killed here. A lamb. Why? Because a lamb is God's plan for redemption. Go to Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, God's people, the children of Israel, have been in captivity. They have been as slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And God wanted to rescue them, save them. But Pharaoh would not let his people go. So God sends judgment onto Egypt. God sends a death angel to come and to kill every firstborn son. But he tells his children, the Jewish people, that if you will kill a lamb and sprinkle blood over the doorpost of your house, the death angel will pass over you and go on to the next house. So that's what all the Jewish people did. They killed a lamb and sprinkled the blood over the house. And they were saved from the judgment of God that night. And every year since then, they celebrate the Passover. And they kill a lamb and they would sprinkle the blood. And all of that pointed to the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, which is Jesus Christ. That's what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1. Isaiah 53 talks about a lamb that is led to slaughter, talking about Jesus 400 years before the crucifixion. Luke 2 talks about Jesus Christ coming, and how does he come? As a lamb. This is God's plan. You might say, John, are you sure about that? I'm positive. Listen to what Peter says later on in the Bible in 1 Peter 1. This is what he says. He says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him. As a ransom long ago before the world began. But now in these last days. It has been revealed for your sake. God chose Jesus to die in your place. For your sin. To pay your price. The Lamb of God. And in heaven. The Lamb of God is standing, taking God's plan for redemption from God the Father. Revealing it to the whole world. To you and me today when... In the last days, as Peter says, he has been revealed in the last days. But here's what's amazing about this lamb in heaven. Not only has this lamb been slaughtered, been slain, but this lamb is standing. Now, you wouldn't think a lamb that has been killed can stand, would you? What happens to a lamb that's slain? It is dead. It is gone. It has no life. But not Jesus. Because what happened after Jesus Christ was crucified and buried? God raised him from the dead. And now he's standing at the right hand of God, fulfilling God's plan for redemption. How can you know that everything in this word is true? One way and one way only, because God raised Jesus from the dead. That is your proof. That is the guarantee. That is how you can know. The Lion, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the King. Worthy to be worshipped. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, where should this lead us? Well, I could talk about a lot of things out of Revelation 5. But just a few of them real quick. The first thing, when you see what John sees in Revelation chapter 5, it should lead you to belief. You should believe in Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know in this room there are believers, those who believe in Jesus. And I know there are unbelievers. I know there are people in here who don't believe in Jesus and have rejected Jesus. But here's what God's plan, the scroll in his hand, this is what it reveals. If you are a believer, it reveals that God is holding you in his hand, his mighty right hand, the Bible says, and nothing can separate you. And one day you will be with him in heaven. And not only will you be with him, the Bible says here in Revelation 5, you will reign with him on this earth. You will reign with Jesus Christ sitting on his throne. You will be princes and princesses, kings and queens just as Jesus is king of this earth. That's why he's working all things together for good for those who believe in him, Romans 8, 28. Now, if you are an unbeliever, if you've rejected Jesus Christ, he holds you in his hand as well. But according to that scroll, according to the book of Revelation, what comes next for you is judgment. And here's the judgment. You are going to be judged because you did not accept and receive Jesus Christ as Lord. You did not believe in Him. You rejected Him. So rather than standing on His merit and what He did on the cross for you and being covered by His blood, you stand alone and you stand naked before God and every horrible thing you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, you will be judged for. And what will happen to you is the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. You will be banished from God. But here's the problem. There will be no chance for redemption at that point. You will be banished from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you will forever live in your sin. Because you did not believe and receive God's plan for redemption written down on the scroll that we see in Revelation chapter 5. So listen to me. Believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9 that God is being patient. What is he being patient? Sending Jesus Christ back to this earth. Because when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, he will judge the world. He says that when he was on this earth the first time. And so God is being patient, and he says the reason he's being patient, 2 Peter 3, 9, is because he wants everyone to come to repentance, meaning he wants you to believe because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, banished, separated from him forever. So today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, here's the second thing you should do. Revelation 5 tells us the second thing you should do is not only believe in him, you should worship him. Because he's worthy of worship. Look at verse 8. Just look on the screens. Look at verse 8, what Revelation 5, 8 says. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood was ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then verse 11 says, Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and four living beings and the elders. And what were they doing? They were singing a new song. Then verse 13, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea. And what were they doing? They were singing. Brothers and sisters, we are going to worship Jesus Christ forever and ever. He will be the center of our worship. Why? Because he is the only one who is worthy. But it won't just be us there. It will be every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every skin color, whatever it is. All creation whom God has redeemed will be standing before the throne of God, worshiping Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Worship him. 
But don't wait to heaven to worship him. You should worship him on this earth. Because he's worthy of that worship. But not only that, not only to benefit him, when you worship him, it benefits you. Because here's what happens when you worship. When you truly worship, and you enter into the presence of God, and you take delight in him, guess what he does? He takes delight in you. And all your cares, and all your fears, and all your worries, and all the sorrow, and all the garbage of this world, all of it goes away. Why? Because you're in the very presence of God. And in that moment, that is all that matters. So worship Him. Worship Him. I tell you all the time what worship is, but for me, this is what worship. A few years ago, when Maddie Kate was younger, my youngest daughter, one of the things I would love to do is come home from work because every day, every day when I would come home from work, the garage doors would open up and I would pull my car in and she would be waiting on me. And the first thing she would do every day is she would run and jump into my arms. And she would wrap her arms around my neck and she would hold on. And what I would do is I would reach down and get my book bags and all the stuff I was bringing home. And I wasn't carrying her, I was just walking in and she was hanging on to me. And she wouldn't let go for anything. That's what worship is. It's when you come into the presence of God and you want it so bad that you grab a hold of Him and you won't let go for anything. That's when you know you're truly worshiping. And that's when God will fill you with peace and with joy and with satisfaction and with feelings that nothing on this earth will give you. It only comes through worship. So worship Him. Believe in Him. You should also serve him. There's a scroll in heaven. God's plan for redemption. So as believers in Jesus Christ, what do we do? Do we sit back and just watch God's plan unfold? No. Because you're part of the plan. And without your part being played in this plan, guess what? This plan will never happen. Think about that one for a moment. What is our part in the plan? Two things. Number one, we are to make the name of Jesus known. Not just here, but everywhere. Who are the people in heaven around the throne of God? Every language, every tribe, every tongue, every people. How do you think they ever heard the name Jesus Christ? It's only when you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, take the name of Jesus to them. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus says, make disciples of who? All nations. Acts 1.8, the very last words he says on this earth. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses where? Everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Unless we make the name of Jesus known to every people, tribe, tongue, nation, language, the end will not come. Go read Matthew 24.14. Jesus says, my name will be made known everywhere, then the end will come. That is our call, that is our command. We are to minister to the world with the name of Jesus. And not just that, we're to minister to the world through prayer. Through prayer. One more verse. We just kind of skipped over this, but I want you to see it. In, Matthew, in Revelation 5, verse 8, this is what it says. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now look at this. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, 
which are the prayers of God's people. Now, your prayers, if you are a child of God, you are a people of God. Every time you pray, your prayers are like incense. You know what incense are? They're just smoke. They're just a fragrance that rises up day and night. And before God the Father, your prayers rise before Him day and night. And what are we to pray according to the mouth of Jesus? What does He tell us in the Lord's Prayer? He says to pray like this, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Go read Revelation 8.3. Guess what happens when God's people pray? His kingdom comes by the prayers of his people. He doesn't just say pray for that. Matthew 9, go read Matthew 9, verse 35 and 38. Jesus sees a crowd of people and he begins to weep for them because he says they are lost like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he turns to the disciples and he says this. He says the harvest is great, but the workers are few. And he says this, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, that he would send more workers in the field. Guess what we're going to see in the book of Revelation? We're going to see workers sent into the field. Why? For the harvest. So as believers, as children of God, as people who serve him, what are we to do? We're to make his name known and we are to pray. What are we to pray for? For his kingdom to come and we're to pray for the souls, salvation for loss. Not just our family, not just our friends, but for the nation's. And when we serve Him, when we give our life to Him, when we give financially to Him, when we go for Him, we are fulfilling His plan written down before the foundations of the earth. Why in the world do you think God placed you on this earth in the most important time in history before He comes back? Was it just a slide of mind on God's part that He put you here? No, He put you here for a purpose and a reason. Why does He let you live in the United States of America where we have more wealth than any nation of the history of the world? We have more influence. We have more technology. Why did He give us all that? To make our life better? No, to make the name of Jesus known. That's why He did all of that. But yet, we don't see it. Because we don't look at the Word of God and read what God says. He's called us. He has put us here for a purpose. So find that purpose and live your life for the glory of God. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. In the 18th century, in the mid-1700s, there was a church in Hernhut, England. This church started out of a great awakening, a revival that came to that little town. The church was the Moravian church. And they believed the word of God. And that was the first church to ever start modern day missions. They sent their people out. And not just into the communities, not just their neighborhoods. They sent them out to the world. They went to places like Southeast Asia and Africa and the Middle East and South America. And this was before airplanes. This was before modern day transportation. They would get on a boat and it would take them months and months and months to get to some of these places. But they went, why? To make the name of Jesus known. They believed in it so much. Out of all of the people in their church, one out of every 60 members was a missionary who was sent with the gospel to the nations, to the ends of the earth. One out of 60. Last week. Earlier I told you, out of the Moravian church, one out of every 60 members was a missionary. Do you know what it is for Southern Baptists? 
And we have the largest missionary force in the world, by the way. It's one for every 4,000 members. One for every 4,000. Back in 1760, as Moravian missionaries were going out, there were two young men that heard about 3,000 slaves in the West Indies. And they knew that those slaves would never hear the name Jesus. So this is what these two young men did. They sold themselves into slavery so that they could take them the name Jesus. Their family could not understand it. It's one thing to go to China or to the ends of the earth with the gospel, but it's another thing to sell yourself into slavery. So on the day that these two men were to depart for those islands as slaves, their families gathered at Hernhut on the docks to watch them go. And as they boarded the ship and their family was left there crying, weeping, as they sailed away, one of the boys took the other by the hand and he held his hand high. Because in the top of his lungs he made this proclamation. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That cry will not be the cry of two missionaries in 1760 and never heard again. That will be the cry for all eternity around the throne of God. Because the lamb who was slain is worthy. And he is worthy of the reward of his suffering. And what is that reward? It is you and it is me. It is believers in Jesus Christ who give our lives to him. Everything that we have, everything that we hope to be, we give ourselves to him. Why? Because he's worthy. He is worthy.